wondered how taboo, shame, and lack of good sexual education have stripped away elements of pleasure in childbirth and parenting that are essential to loving, intimate relationships. Join me for another episode of Orgasmic Birth Podcast, Pleasure in Pregnancy, Birth, and Parenting, as we break down and heal barriers and open the door to more love and intimacy in birth and life. Are you as intrigued as I am thinking about the hormones of birth? Do you wonder how common interventions in childbirth impact your hormonal flow and the gaps they create? Hi, I'm Deborah Pascali Benaro, founder and director of Orgasmic Birth and host of the podcast, Orgasmic Birth. Today, we're joined by a friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Buckley. She is trained as a GP family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics. She's been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997 and is the author of the international best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Sarah has a special interest in the hormones of physiological labor and birth and the impact of interventions. In 2015, she completed an extensive report on the topic, The Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection. She is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, researching oxytocin in labor and birth and the impacts of maternity care interventions. She has co-authored several papers on oxytocin in labor, birth, and breastfeeding. Sarah is also the mother of four children, all born at home and now in their teenage years and beyond. She lives on the semi-rural outskirts of Brisbane, Australia. If you've listened to podcast number four with Sarah, she talked about the hormones of labor, birth, and sex. And I know, then you know, you're in for a treat today with Sarah's wisdom and research. She's going to take us a step further to discuss common interventions in childbirth and how to address the hormonal gaps they create. Welcome, Sarah. It's so wonderful to have you back. Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be here. So you gave us so much to think about and percolate all about the hormones of labor, birth, breastfeeding. And we even dove into a bit how those are similar and connected to the hormones of sexuality. But we know that many times labor asks different things of that mother for the safety of the baby and interventions are either a needed part of birth or sometimes just over-medicalization of birth in different parts of the world. Can you help us kind of maybe give us a quick reframe of the hormones and then what are some of the common interventions and what do they do to the hormonal flow and what can all birthing people and doulas and parents and partners to to help fill that gap. Thanks, Deborah. My favorite topic. Yes. Yeah, so the main things I've been studying recently, and as you said, publish on papers in this area is oxytocin. And it is the most well-known hormone of labor and birth. And it's also susceptible to hormonal gaps, as we've said. But just to recap a little bit. So oxytocin has been called the hormone of love, hormone of connection, hormone of trust, and the hormone of labor and birth, which was what it was first identified as oxytocin birth. 
But what we know now is it's not just in labor and birth about contracting the uterus to birth the baby, but and, and this is all mammals we're talking here, but also oxytocin is released not only from the brain where it's made to the uterus, but within the brain. And this is really important to understand because at the same time that it's facilitating these rhythmic, powerful contractions of labor, it's oxytocin effect as we call it, it's also assisting the birthing um, female. And I'm talking about all mammals here by providing calm, connection, pain relief as well within the brain. And it's also um, activating the parasympathetic, the calm and connection system, reducing stress, reducing the sympathetic nervous system. And it's also powerfully switching on or activating the reward and pleasure centers. And this is a feature of all mammals. You know, if you think about your dog giving birth or an elephant in a zoo or an animal in the wild, right? They don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their babies. It has to be activated through the processes of labor and birth. So this powerful hormonal activation in the brain, switching on those dopamine centers. You may have heard of that hormone, brain chemical dopamine, which is reward and pleasure. And what that means is that as the, the new mother meets her baby or babies, whether they're mice or cats or whatever, and for the first time, she's got this powerful reward and pleasure center activation. And then she has the sensory input from her babies, the smell, the sight, the taste, because most mammals lick their babies. And those things get, we say, fired and wired together in the brain so that the newborns are immediately a source of pleasure and reward. And that's what's going to motivate her and every mammalian mother to give that dedicated care that every mammalian newborn needs. So oxytocin in the body facilitates the processes of labor and birth. We talked last time about the snowball of labor, about positive feedback cycles. That means that oxytocin increases and increases as labor progresses, making the contraction stronger and stronger, effectively pushing the baby out at the, at the pushing stage of labor, and then this activation in the brain. So that's kind of oxytocin in a nutshell, or what I call mother nature's superb design. It's how it's designed to work. And you can see, also I have to mention that oxytocin is a hormone of breastfeeding, of lactation, and all mammals, it's the letdown reflex hormone. So as the baby suckles, the stimulation of the nipple sends a signal to the brain to release oxytocin. And again, it's not just having that physical effect of letting the milk down so the baby can suckle, the milk ejection reflex, but it's also within the brain. It's switching on the reward and pleasure centers. It's calming and soothing the mother so she can settle down and enjoy suckling and breastfeeding and stay still and she can get pleasure from her babies, which is again going to reinforce all of that mammalian caretaking behavior. And we've no reason to think that isn't true for humans as well, because of course we have all that same common, we could say evolutionary heritage through 65 million years of mammalian evolution. And we have that same mechanisms of lactation as well. So hormone of love is also the hormone of birth, hormone of bonding and hormone of breastfeeding in mother nature's superb design. That What a great overview. You're so good at kind of encapsulating this. And so now when we move into some of the common interventions in childbirth, what are some of the ones that you see start us off on some of the simple ones that might begin to create a gap and what we can do to try to fill that? So we talked last time also about the, the, the hormones of labor and birth or having a baby are almost identical to the hormones of making a baby, right? And oxytocin is a hormone of sexual arousal. It's a hormone of orgasm in males and females. And if you think about the conditions that you need to release oxytocin, to have sexual activity and to have an orgasm, right? You can't do it in 
public, yeah, you can't do it outside. You actually need to feel private and safe. So the core requirements for oxytocin release in labor is the same thing. The laboring female, and again, we're talking all mammals here, needs to feel private and safe. And if you watch a mammal of any species, what do they do when they're in labor? They seek a safe place. You know, your cat gives birth in your laundry basket or in your cupboard, you know. An elephant is actually surrounded by a circle of female helpers, you know. Dolphin midwife. There's lots of other ways that mammals feel have the sense of safety in labor and birth. So that's the core requirement. And like sexual activity, if we don't feel private and safe, it's hard for all of those hormones, especially oxytocin, to get off the ground. So, you know, that kind of explains a lot of the things that we see in childbirth that when women give birth in their own home, safe, private environment, their need for interventions is much lower and their outcomes are just as good. And again, you may have also heard or experienced yourself that phenomenon where you're laboring at home and everything's really good and flowing and you hop in the car to go to hospital and you walk through the doors and everything just stops because, you know, even though you may intellectually think that hospital is a safe place to give birth, your limbic system, your middle brain, your little primal brain has a different opinion. You know, you're in this strange place, there's strange smells, noises, strange people. You know, we're not designed as mammals to birth in those situations. So, you know, the close core requirements and, you know, giving birth in a foreign place, you could say, is really the first intervention. And that's why... You know, um, having your own birth companion, ideally your own midwife or your own doula to help you to feel safe is really so important. And that's why there's so much fewer interventions, so much better outcomes when a woman has that one-on-one companionship, whether it's one-on-one midwifery care or one-on-one doula care. And just to share an anecdote myself, you know, my first birth, um, I had a quite a fast labor for my first birth and then midwife walked in just as I was pushing and I was scared. I thought, oh my goodness me, what's going to happen? This is ahead of schedule. Like, and because I knew this woman, I'd been seeing her, you know, for one hour consultations for the whole pregnancy. We'd built a relationship. We knew each other. I felt safe with her. And just looking in her eyes, there was this transmission of safety to me. By the way, oxytocin comes from eye to eye contact too. And I could relax and give birth to my baby. So, so important to feel private and safe. And ideally, and I'm not saying this is we'll have to give birth in a cave, but really what it is for you to feel private and safe. And again, you know, the conditions that you need to have a baby, you know, to, to make a baby, you could look at what are the situations I'm setting up to have a baby? How can I make it more amenable to oxytocin, to sexual activity? And I love, I love your hint about taking a vibrator to the hospital too, Deborah. <laughs> you know, how can you clear the room when there's too many people in there and you, and you can't get fast past first base, we could say. So that's really the first in- intervention is going outside of your own private safe environment. So again, we could talk about how can you make it private and safe, take someone, take your birthing companion, take your partner, you know, take sensory things. The smell is, is actually part of connected to the primal brain. Take a pillow to bury your head in, take an eye mask, take headphones, you know, shut out those, those signals, those sensations that tell your body that you're not safe. And of course, have companions there that you can trust and feel safe with. So yeah, that's the first intervention you could say. As the great late great Master Wagner said, walking out the, the walking out of your house is the first intervention we could say, and can create a hormonal gap. And then all of those things, how can we address that hormonal gap? Yeah, I love the great ideas. I love as doulas, right? And and 
adding that continuous companionship from a midwife and doula. But also, if you're going to go somewhere, having all that, that mask, the change the smells, change what you hear, change what you taste, what you feel, bring all those senses, right, to safety and privacy. Yeah, such great advice. And so once they get Let's say for those people that are going to make that move, whether it's even a birth center or a hospital, but it's not their own place, what are some other things that you would recommend? What are some other things that might create some gaps once they settle in? Yes. Well, of course, you know, being in an unfamiliar place can make labor slow down. And, you know, if you think about the way that traditional systems of maternity care operate, you know, in villages, the way that we've always given birth, you know, the number one priority is the woman's emotional well-being. And we've kind of put that at the bottom of the list here, which again, doulas and midwives have to fill in that gas. But if you are in that situation and labor slows down when you go to hospital, of course, we've talked about sexual activity is a great way to, to stimulate oxytocin release, feeling private and safe. You know, often people will choose the smallest room if they've got a choice, the shower or the toilet is a great place to feel private and safe. But of course, if labor slows down a lot, um, you may be offered an intervention to speed labor up, which is synthetic oxytocin to speed labor up. And sometimes that can be effective, like if it's given in low doses, it can get labor going and may even get labor going well enough that, that it can be stopped. And there's some, there's some evidence that, that that might be an effective thing once we get labor going. And I just want to refer you back to the positive feedback cycles that I talked about last time. You know, when you get strong sensations and feedbacks from the uterus, there's a specific nerve pathway that feeds back to the brain that tells the brain to release oxytocin. And that brain oxytocin then travels to the uterus, causes stronger contractions, more sensory feedback to the brain, more oxytocin release. So that's a positive feedback loop. And at the same time that that's happening, that release of oxytocin in from the brain is also into the brain. So it's having that calming, connecting, pain-relieving effects. It's switching on the reward and pleasure centers. And as the contractions get more powerful, we get more brain oxytocin release. So it's a perfect balance to ensure that labor is not a, you know, it's not a walk in the park. And most women do have sensations, have intensity to some extent, but it's not overwhelming. And it's not, you know, for all mammals, you know, it's not an aversive experience. You know, Mother Nature wants it, the, the, the mammal to come out feeling good about it. Yeah. Because next time they go into labor, that could be a problem if it's incredibly stressful. So labor is designed to overall be a positive experience. So so sometimes that little bit of synthetic oxytocin or anything actually that stimulates contractions can get that positive feedback cycle going and even end up with more brain oxytocin release. So what we think, and I'm just, we're just writing a paper, I've just submitted a paper about this with my colleague, um, Emeritus Professor Kirsten Uvnas-Moberg, who is a worldwide expert on oxytocin and birth. And I can't tell you everything in the paper, but one of the findings, one of the hypotheses that we come, come out of that paper with from looking at, and this paper is actually looking at measurements when they've actually measured women's oxytocin levels in labor and birth with and without synthetic oxytocin infusions. And what we found is that low dose infusions really don't increase the mother's oxytocin levels much above what she would naturally produce in labor. And if it's low dose, it may stimulate contractions enough to get the woman's own feedback cycle going. But what we think is when the doses get high, it could counteract that calming, connecting, pain-relieving effect by causing stress 
for the mother, increased pain, increased stress in the uterine muscle, which is a muscle after all that's contracting. And it's like when you go for a run, if you run too hard, your muscle gets painful because you get a lactic acid buildup and that's a physiological stress. And it's it certainly there's good evidence that that's a physiological stress in labor as well for the uterine muscle. If, you know, it's a fine balance. You know, we, we have for, for our body the right balance. It's all finely tuned. And then when we bring in interventions that unsettle that balance or unstabilize that, and that we, yeah, high doses of synthetic oxytocin could do that for the mother, you know, that, that can create a disruption to the system. And maybe we're thinking, and we don't have evidence for this at the moment, that, that they could you know, disrupt the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. And of course, we're not just talking about the, the birthing person, the mother here in labor, we're talking about the baby as well. So the baby also has this fine balance and the baby has, well, just going back to mammals, so placental mammals. So, you know, as I said last time, placental mammals had been around for about 65 million years. And for 99.999% of that time, there's only one way out for the baby, which is through the contractions of labor. And every contraction is inevitably going to squeeze the placenta. And squeezing the placenta decreases blood and oxygen to the baby. So there's, that's, that's a given, right? There's no, there's no way around that. It causes inevitable what we call hypoxia, low oxygen for the baby. But of course, through the 65 million years, babies have survived and, you know, through evolution or you could call it God's superb design if you like. But through these processes, the babies have learned to adapt, you could say, to those hypoxic stresses of labor. So there's a lot of ways that the babies protect themselves from labor hypoxia. And particularly, of course, the brain. You know, we, there's this big worry about the brain and labor, but Mother Nature's got it sorted out. There's many mechanisms that protect the baby's brain from that inevitable hypoxia of labor and oxytocin is part of that it's an antioxidant anti-inflammatory the baby also has a surge of hormones called the catecholamines adrenaline and noradrenaline which increase as labor progresses and at the end of labor the baby has such high levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline that would cause a stroke in a normal adult but it's just what the baby needs to wake them up and to make sure the brain has a good supply of blood and oxygen to make sure that the lungs are ready for the respiratory transition because, of course, the babies never breathe before in their life and suddenly comes out and has to take a first breath. It's an extraordinary thing. It's miraculous on every level, right, that all of these hormones are making sure the baby's prepared for that, yeah clearing their airways of fluid, opening up their airways, increasing lung surfactant, all of these mechanisms that ensure a positive transition for the baby, yeah. But it's all designed to work in a particular way, yeah. It's designed to work with the baby, with the mother, with the hormones, and especially with that increasing contraction strength that we've talked about that I call the snowball of labor. It starts small, becomes bigger and bigger, and the end becomes virtually unstoppable. And that's important for the baby because the baby has a chance to build up these adaptations to increase the adrenaline and noradrenaline to increase all these protection from hypoxia. And of course, if you get those strong contractions early in labor, you know, if the, if the pitocin, syntocin on drip is turned up too high and the mother has these strong contractions, that can be more than the baby can cope with. And that's really why any, any person who gets a synthetic oxytocin drip, pitocin, syntocin on, needs to be monitored because there is a risk to the baby, right? So if you're offered an intervention and they say you need monitoring, there's a risk to your baby by definition. So that's the downside of synthetic oxytocin for the baby. The contractions become too strong, too close together early in labor. The baby doesn't have a chance to um, replenish in between, to replenish the blood supply. And there's some really interesting animal studies and they show that it's not just the strength of the contraction, it's the interval in between. So the baby can actually cope with strong contractions as long as they have that interval 
to replenish blood and oxygen supplies. And often what synthetic oxytocin can do is cause those contractions to be stronger and closer together. So compromise the baby's ability to cope. And we know there's a whole lot of risks to babies from synthetic oxytocin because there's a monitor and also because of studies that have been done as well. So it really is a fine balance. It's a fine balance in our own physiology. And it's also a fine balance when we bring in interventions as well. Yeah. That, what a important overview, you know, you gave us so many things because I wish we could say always, right, we could use that low dose. I often think of it like jumpstarting because you said like sometimes then the mother's own feedback loop is strengthened and they can disconnect. But sadly, my experience as a doula is rarely do I see that happen. Most facilities keep it going and don't give the time to kind of assess or maybe reassess if their own oxytocin is going. But can I ask you, like for people that are being induced or being augmented with synthetic oxytocin, pitocin, they could still be stimulating their own system, right? They still could be oh, loving yeah. and kissing and... Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the other downside of everything we're going to talk about is the, the need for all the co-interventions co like monitoring. So then, you know, usually you're stuck in the bed with the monitor on, you know, I mean, there are some options, I don't know, in the US, but they're increasingly trying to do telemetry where like, the woman can be mobile and there's a connection and the baby can still be monitored. So that's a good that's a good option because, again, you can move around, you can hug, you can have a massage, you know, all of those things that help us to feel private and safe and relaxed also. So I just want to go back a step also because we've talked about, you know, someone coming into hospital and labour slowing down and getting offered a synthetic oxytocin drip. But, of course, the other possibility is that the woman's offered an, or the birthing person's offered an induction because labour hasn't started when it should start because they're technically overdue and there's a lot of controversy in that area as well. Or there may actually even be a good reason to be induced. And there are times when, you know, labor continuing is not good for the mother and or not good for the baby. So induction, we've talked about synthetic oxytocin being used for, we call it augmentation or speeding up labor. But it can also be used and is commonly used more often than not for induction, even if another method is used initially, often it's used in, at some point in, in, in the process. So it's a different hormonal physiology, we could say, when, if you're being induced. Because, and I, I want to refer you to chapter two of my hormonal physiology of childbearing report, which is a great summary of what we know about the, the spontaneous or physiological onset of labor. And basically, it's a very complicated process. And if I could tell you what causes the physiological onset of labor, I'd get a Nobel Prize, right? Because we don't actually know what causes it. It's humans. I mean, it's a slightly different mechanism in the mammalian species that have been studied. So we don't know what causes the onset. But what we know is that if induction happens, then you're actually skipping over the full readiness for the birthing person, the mother, and, and the baby. Now, if you haven't gone into labor spontaneously, by definition, baby isn't fully ready, the, the mother isn't fully ready. Like there's no way around that because even though we don't know what actually causes the onset of labor, we do know that there's a long complex preparation time. Yeah. It reminds me of my friend and mentor, Janine Pavati-Baker. And she was a, a midwife, um, a wonderful woman, and she had six children. And she, when anyone asked her how long her labor was, she'd say categorically no months. <laughs> because it's true. That's how long it takes. You know, we kind of think it's an episode, but it really is a co continuity. 
So there's lots and lots of, you could say, candidates for the, for the, that trigger that, the onset of labor. But one thing we know for sure is there's signals that get passed between mother and baby that ensure that the readiness of the mother and the readiness of the baby is coordinated through their bodies, through these placental signals, maybe other ways as well. Yeah. So you could say the, the, the baby gets ready through adrenal hormones, through cortisol, which matures the baby's organs, passes signals to the mother, which upregulates her, which increases her estrogen, which upregulates it's oxytocin. And the other thing we know about the um, preparation for labor is there's a dramatic increase in oxytocin receptors in the uterus. I think I talked about this last time about hormones and the receptors and everything. So I'll refer you back to that. But what that means is that the mother's uterus becomes very sensitive to oxytocin in the lead up to labor. So if she's in her own natural physiological onset, she doesn't need to produce very much oxytocin to trigger contractions yeah, at the physiological onset of labor. But if you're being induced, then that's a different scenario. You don't have that peak of readiness. You don't have that optimal number, you know, three and a half thousand compared to like one and a half in a non-pregnant person, you know, this exquisite sensitivity. You don't have that if you're being induced. You're, you're somewhere below that. And in this, um, the study that was done, women at the, the end of pregnancy had about one and a half thousand density of oxytocin receptors and women in, uh, in early labor had about three and a half thousand. So even from that, it's quite a dramatic increase. And um, so that, that sensitivity is there. So if you are induced, by definition, you're not going to have that same sensitivity and you probably will need to have higher doses and more stimulation. It's basically a hormonal gap that we've got to, got to close by stimulating more and more and more. And of course, it's not just oxytocin receptors. There's a whole lot of parallel things happening. Prostaglandins, inflammation, signals from the baby pass through the, through the amniotic fluid to the lungs. You know, they're all, <laughs> there's all Nobel Prizes in waiting there for the person that discovers <laughs> this and a lot of mechanisms in parallel, right? But basically, if you haven't gone into labor spontaneously, you're going to need to work harder to get your body into labor, whether it's the often prostaglandins are used and or a me mechanical mechanism to basically irritate the cervix, which triggers processes we call inflammation, which makes prostaglandins, which increase oxytocin. I mean, there's all these cascades that happen. And it was interesting because in, in doing this research that we're doing, we actually did what's called a systematic review. So we found all the studies that have ever been done on levels of oxytocin with birth interventions. And we found a small number, maybe six or eight, I can't remember, on prostaglandins, which are mostly older studies. So we don't actually know what the, the impact of prostaglandins is on the oxytocin system. So, you know, we're kind of interfering with things that we don't even know what the consequences of them are. So is, is, and it seems like also just going back biologically, you know, because parturition, as it's called in biological terms, like giving birth amongst, amongst animals, including humans, because it's such a critical process, it seems like there may be several pathways to, 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 to parturition as well. There's like redundancies, we call it, where there's other systems that could get you there besides the oxytocin system. And this, was a, this was a revelation, just a little bit of a side note. They actually bred these mice to be deficient in the whole oxytocin system. And those mice still went into labor. So it's like, whoa, <laughs> everyone was a bit shocked. But really, if you go back to evolutionary terms, because labor and birth is so critical, there's no doubt parallel systems. If this system is, is, is inactivated, there'll be another system to work. So lots of fascinating biology there. But basically, um, coming back to that core message, induction means a lack of peak readiness for the mother, for the baby, a hormonal gap. We've got to work harder. 
mechanical mechanisms to irritate the cervix, like a Foley catheter or other catheters, you know, work by initiating some of those, we say, inflammatory cascades, prostaglandins a little more directly, and synthetic oxytocin is often, and rupturing the membranes too, that's actually in our in our list of interventions, and it seems like it does trigger prostaglandin release, but not directly oxytocin release. But then, you know, that positive feedback loop, we talked about the, the sensations, there's other positive feedback loops in labor there, including prostaglandin and oxytocin interaction. I hope I'm not getting too technical here. I get a bit no, It's <laughs> fascinating, and it really is incredible. Well, I have to ask you about one more intervention that's really common here. And I'm in New Jersey, in my region, around 80 to 90% of all people, shortly after, like, they get into the hospital, they're offered, and because it's offered, so many women are having epidurals. How does an epidural impact the hormones? Yeah. So again, every intervention has its place. It can be really good in some situations for mothers, for birthing women, birthing people. But the problem with epidural is, and if we go back to that feedback loop we were talking about, where the sensations from the uterus feed back by a specific nerve pathway to the brain. You can't see me touching my uterus. <laughs> and down back to the uterus, right? So um, it, it basically stops that feedback loop because the sensations from the uterus to the brain are so effectively abolished. So because it's such an effective means of pain relief and it actually blocks those nerves, biologically, the, the local anesthetic block the sensations. So we that's positive feedback loop slows down or even stops and we can see it the oxytocin levels go down and by the end of um, labor and birth the the oxytocin levels are like way lower than they would have been in, in people going through physiological labor and birth so it's a, the impact on the feedback system is it, it, that's an oxytocin effect there's other hormonal effects likely we're actually looking at that at the moment but that, lo- that lack of the, the feedback loop means not just that oxytocin levels go down and labor tends to slow, which creates a hormonal gap, which usually women are given synthetic oxytocin to cover the gap, right? Pitocin. But the other problem is that the brain release of oxytocin gets slowed down or stopped as well. So what that means is that the, the laboring person doesn't have those calming, connecting, pain relieving, stimulation of reward and pleasure centers as well, you know, and the processes of labor and birth tend to put women into an older state of consciousness. It's not just oxytocin, it's opioids in the brain. And that's kind of what you observe about people having an epidural is they don't have that altered state of consciousness. And that is part of Mother Nature's superb design to help with the stress and pain of labor, to activate the pleasure and reward centers to, for bonding with the babies. And there certainly are studies that have shown some impact on bonding when, when women have an epidural um, And animals, very clear evidence in animals that that feedback loop impacts the bonding between mother and baby after birth. So a hormonal gap is uh, produced. Yeah. Yeah. And so what would you recommend? I know as a doula, I'm always saying to people that, you know, to work through all their possible choices and options and what would happen in different situations. So if they did want or need an epidural, what would be some ways that they could help fill the gap? Yes. Well, once that epidural is in place and the, the pain sensations are gone, <laughs> unfortunately, that feedback loop has slowed down or stopped. And there's really no way around that, you know, because it's related to the efficacy of the epidural. So if you wanted to, you know, not impact that loop so much, you'd have to have an epidural that wasn't effective, which is a bit 
not so <laughs> that's why you get it for right so we can't work around that but what we can do is fill in the hormonal gap after the birth so the number number two things that, that are critical for that and i'm sure that you know this yourself and what you do as a doula is get the mother and baby or the birthing person and baby skin to skin as soon as possible and for as long as possible after birth as i said last time you know after birth for, from our mammalian heritage from 65 million years of evolution there's nowhere else for the baby to be but on the birthing person's body yeah skin to skin releases oxytocin it's calming connecting you know soothes the baby soothes the birthing person or mother as well so that's really important so skin to skin contact and then the suckling you know the suckling is really critical that releases oxytocin for the mother and actually for the baby as well the act of suckling and those skin to skin contact and suckling is the magic ingredient for the hour after to birth it's going to help both mother and baby to release oxytocin and reconnect there is still a hormonal gap you know we can't cover that just with a with one hour breastfeeding after the birth it really is well we, breastfeeding probably long-term breastfeeding is the other answer to that hormonal gap and i'll just share um, a reason why i say that it was some research showing that when women go through physiological labor and birth i may mention this last time they have a change in their personality they become less stressed more social there's physical tension right that when women have an epidural they don't get those changes at birth because they don't get that brain oxytocin release and the study actually followed women up to four to six months and those women who exclusively breastfed did get those personality changes eventually so you know we've got a hormonal gap we want to fill it, we're going to have to be a lot more patient to fill that hormonal gap because we've missed that window of opportunity when mother and baby were at this peak of readiness for it, what I call the best first date ever in my previous talk. And then, so we've got to put in a lot more effort to fill in that hormonal gap. We've missed what's biologically called the early sensitive period. So you can fill in that gap, but it's going to take a lot more skin to skin and a lot more breastfeeding to fill in that gap. And we haven't talked about cesarean, but basically the same thing. There's a hormonal gap. Fill it in with skin to skin and breastfeeding. And I'm very heartened by, well, you know, with the epidural, you know, you many lactation consultants for breastfeeding, but again, skin to skin and breastfeeding is the, is the um, answer to that. And again, for a cesarean as well, as much skin to skin as possible. And some of the beautiful practices being done, the natural family-centered cesarean where the baby's put straight on the, the mother's or birthing person's body skin to skin that's the ideal and again you can't have too much skin to skin yeah that's where the baby's designed to be and even the early bumps you know a soft carrier that you can wrap your baby in skin to skin is going to help those hormonal gaps as well you answered my question before i even said it about the cesarean verse so thank you so much and Thank you, Sarah, for sharing all this wisdom. It's so important. I hope that everyone that's listening is really taking it in. And I know they're going to want to get in touch with you and follow you. And especially with new research coming out, how can people be in touch? Where can they find you? Yeah, we can go to my website, sarahbuckley.com. There's quite a lot of information in there. There's a nice picture of the feedback loops that I'm talking about on my epidural blog. There's an epidural, uh, there's a blog, How to Have the Best Cesarean. There's part one about synthetic oxytocin. And once our paper's published, I'll be able to write part two. So there's a lot of good information there. You can sign up to my newsletter and find out when these papers are coming out as well. On my book, Gentle Work, Gentle Mothering, of course. Yeah. And I'm available on all the Amazons and in Australia through my website. And also my hormonal physiology of childbearing report. But there's also links on my website too. If you look all the signs on the homepage, you'll find links to all these 
papers that we've been publishing because we publish them open access, which means that you can download the whole lot and read them. And I think we've made them not te- technically not, not, not too technical. So I think they're very understandable. Very understandable and really helpful. I encourage everyone who's listening to go to Sarah's website. So much information to take in to help you prepare to positively prepare for birth and for doulas and birth keepers. Great information for you as well. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, again. And I, for everyone listening here, remember to go back to episode four as well, because even more details about the hormonal physiology, these two episodes really go so beautifully together. And I hope as you have more research in the future, you'll come back and continue to share with us. Thank you, Deborah, and uh, a special thank you to all uh, midwives, doulas, birth workers out there supporting the hormones of labour and birth and just sending all my best to birthing parents, expected moms and, and birthing people that you have a beautiful birth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about pleasure in birth parenting and birth work, visit orgasmicbirth.com forward slash more for my free gifts. And please leave a review about your experience. Reviews help us to reach more people and please subscribe.